0: Well, good evening everybody, welcome to Bible study, we're glad you're here to get going uh, with a little bit of prayer and then see what uncovers what's revealed what God says and uh, let's pray Father thank you for the opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus we ask you Jesus that you would lead us guide us we pray that you would teach us tonight and we ask for your revelation I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit would be saying tonight and I pray that we would be ready to receive. Uh, God, if things need to change in us, I pray that you would begin that process tonight. If things need to be renewed in us, I pray that we would experience that tonight. God, I ask you that we would have a renewed hunger, thirsting after your word and after your presence in our life. So God, be glorified. I pray you, you would just speak. I pray that, God, you would reveal, and I ask that we would be ready to receive, we give you honor and praise, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to open up the Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, if you need a Bible, uh, some are located on the tables, Our, of course, digital versions are awesome. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage and there's a button that you can toggle and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study. Or maybe you have a comment. Or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line. Uh, leave us a message. And we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Nehemiah 9. Seventeen. So I have a volunteer willing to read that.
1: They refuse to listen, fail to remember the miracles we performed among them. They became next and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. You are forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you do not desert
0: them. All right, Thanks. Uh, again, Nehemiah is written uh, after, uh, at the close of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, we look; we've been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king and uh, the Chaldeans, and so he had the Persians. He had uh, been one that was trusted, and so the King of Babylonia sent him uh, along with papers and everything that he needed, money. Uh, and whatever other authorizations he needed back to Jerusalem. And he was commissioned to lead a rebuilding of the wall and the city. And so he did just that. And as they were getting ready to dedicate the wall, the city, and all that, they were setting some things in order, and that's what you see. Uh, throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, you see a resetting of order over Jerusalem. This has been about 70 years they had lived in exile, Seven, 70 years they lived in slavery. Uh, they had been carried away, and so this is their opportunity to come back. Ezra was mainly concerned about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah was more concerned about rebuilding the wall and rebuilding some of the city. So, uh, again, what you see and what's being proclaimed here is very prophetic. Uh, The great thing about Ezra and Nehemiah's books is that they are, uh, for much of the writing, a very prophetic book. And so we understand from that that there is a testimony that is the testimony of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. And I had mentioned this one time before, and I'll mention it again tonight. I think it's worth just saying again that there was a shift that took place. And as Israel began to move toward a synagogue system, they began to move toward a a system where uh, rabbis would teach in the synagogue, they moved away from what had been the the first five books of the Bible as been their main focus, and they began to teach more out of the prophets. And there was a reason for that shift. And part of the reason for that shift is that the prophets and the spirit of the prophets were very forward-looking. And from what we understand, and we understand the testimony of the prophets, it's the testimony of the Spirit that was in the prophets. And that Spirit that was in the prophets, that was the Spirit of Christ. And so their testimony was the Spirit of Christ. And so throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, and it doesn't matter which one you're looking at, you can look at um, Isaiah, you look at Jeremiah, you look at Daniel, you look at Ezekiel, Uh, any of the prophets, the the major prophets, the minor prophets, there was the Spirit of Christ that was speaking through them. And so there was revelation of the Gospel that was being brought forth through the writing and the proclamations the prophets were bringing. And this is no different. If you read this section, I mean, Nehemiah 9.17, you understand the section there, what you're seeing there is a proclamation, you're seeing a prophetic utterance but a revelation of Jesus. You're seeing a revelation of the New Testament understanding of the kingdom of God. You're seeing a revelation of what God was about to do. And that's part of the idea of how the prophets and everything shifted over to them because it was looking forward to a better time. It was looking forward to the Messiah. It was looking forward to the establishment of the kingdom of God. Looking forward to what God is going to do and what God is doing. And so there was a shift that took place with that. And so you see in this passage, there's two sections I, I just really want to look at in this. I took the original notes I took on this, I was reading through. I, I took two notes on this passage. I'll give you both of them. It's my super secret notes on this passage. The first one was, people are rebellious. That's number one. The second note I took on this passage is, God is loving and gracious. So, people are rebellious. God is loving and gracious. That's kind of our story. I mean, it doesn't get more basic than that. Well, a little bit more basic than that. God is good. Remember this one? The devil is bad. Love God, hate the devil. Alright, so that's basic. But if you begin to describe the human condition, you want to describe our condition before God, how we exist, where our relationship and the basis of our relationship comes from with God. The basis of our relationship comes from God is, number one, we're going to need to know who we are. First of all, who am I? I'm rebellious. Who am I? I'm disobedient. Who am I? Read down that whole list. That's who we are. And it's, it's no secret. You can pretend it's not true. You can pretend that you're something else. And like I said, I've met little old ladies in churches. I travel from church to church, and I meet little old ladies, and they would tell me, and, and they'd introduce themselves in such a way as I'd say, oh, well, it's a pleasure to meet you, whatever. And they'd say, you know, I haven't sinned in word or deed in 40 years. That's just not true. I didn't say anything to the little old lady because, I mean, who am I to rock her boat? All right, She's probably 100 years old for all I know. But that she wanted to make sure I understood she hadn't sinned in word or deed for 40 years. And people used to say things like that because they believed it. They really believed that. And yet, we understand that we're rebellious by our very nature. That regardless of how far we think we've come in the last 40 years or however long it was, we, we still don't have a leg to stand on in our own righteousness, and we never have. And so understanding that we don't have that leg to stand on, and really accepting the fact that we're just a rebellious people, and that we refuse to listen, we forget what God does, we have a progressive stubbornness about us, we have a refusal to obey, and we seek the approval of others. That's everything he mentions there. Yeah, that's our condition. And that was their condition. I mean, you look back and we think people were so different, you know, so long ago. I mean, you think George Washington was different than you. Well, maybe he had wooden teeth and he wore a wig, but it, it, when it comes right down to human condition, he was the same. And you go back further than him. You go back more than 250 years ago. And you go back 500 years. You go back 1,000 years. You go back as far as you want. People are people. And our condition hasn't really changed much over all that time. And, and what's amazing about all that time is that God loved us that whole time and He still loves us. And from the very beginning and, and the decisions that were made, the decisions that were made in rebellion, decisions that were made in disobedience, decisions that were made for selfish reasons and all the rest of those kind of things, God never stopped loving us. and He never will. And that's what this, this passage tells us. You see, and I hope you can feel it. I hope you can sense that, that spirit of Christ in this passage. I hope you can sense that forward-looking understanding of this is who God is. This is who Christ is. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. I hope you can sense that about it. Because at the same time that it's saying we are rebellious, it's also saying that God is loving, God is gracious, God forgives, God is full of grace, God is tender, God is kind, God is slow to get angry, and God never leaves or forsakes us. Yeah. That's in the book of Nehemiah. Describing a situation with the children of Israel that took place in the wilderness when they were being led by Moses. This is about a people that had just spent 70 years in captivity Because they couldn't right the ship out of rebellion. A people that had lost everything. And I've described this every week. We've talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. These people lost everything. Everything. Their homes were gone. Their properties were gone. Their possessions were gone. The city had been burned to the ground and destroyed. They lost everything. The temple was gone. They had nothing. And it was all because they just refused, refused to right the ship that they were on. They were given the opportunity. How many prophets were sent to them saying you need to right the ship? Many were sent to them. How many people rose up and said we need to do this? Many rose up and said they needed to do this. And yet they did whatever they wanted to do. That is the human condition. And so as a result of their decisions, They ended up in Babylonia 70 70 years, lost everything. And so this is their return. And they're being reminded of a people that had crossed the vast wilderness, right? And who had inherited the promised land to start with. But how they had also lived in rebellion. And they had refused to listen. And they had forgotten the miracles that God had done. They had become progressively stubborn. They had refused to obey. They had sought the approval of others. And they even wanted to return to their slavery. That's what they wanted to do. And yet, God never left them nor forsook them. He loves them. and mercy on them over and over and over again. Forgave them over and over and over it was full of grace in their life over and over again. Showed Himself as tender and kind. Over hundreds of years, He was slow to anger slow to anger. And he never left them, he never forsook them at all. And you're being reminded, this is the God we serve. they are being reminded, this is the God that had now led them back again. For what? Another opportunity. Another chance. Another moment. <coughs> if you go up to and We start with the first thing about people being rebellious. You know, rebellion takes different forms. Because you can say, well, I'm not rebellious. Well, you might not be obviously rebellious, but rebellion takes different forms. Especially if you grew up Christian. You've learned to be rebellious without drawing a lot of attention to yourself. Probably. If you're any good at it, you figured that part out because that's what people do. They want to do what they want to do, and so they learn how to be rebellious, but they don't want to draw attention to it, and they don't want to get people angry at them, and so they're just quietly rebellious. Well, that's the sneakiest kind. Because if you're that quietly rebellious, that you're fooling the people around you. Then maybe you're just fooling yourself too. And so I want to encourage you to really think about that, that rebellion can take a lot of different forms. It can look a lot different on a lot of different people. I like obviously rebellious people. They're easier to figure out. Obviously rebellious people, that's my kind of people. You know, they just say, I ain't doing that. Okay. I mean, I was just talking to somebody today. I was talking to Kalen or somebody, and uh, there's people that I train. And I'll tell them, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do A, B, and C, and they'll just look at me and say, I'm not doing that. All right. I'd rather them tell me that than just kind of, you know, kind of half-ass it and just not do it the way it's supposed to be done because I don't want to do it in the first place. I'd rather just say, I'm not doing that. All right, well, then I'll figure something else they'll do. And I'll just get them going on that. And so, you you kind of understand the difference between what I'm saying here, is that there are certain people, they're just going to tell you flat out I ain't doing it, and then there's other people, they're just going to like, you know, yeah, or they'll make some excuse about it, or they'll ask you, this is my favorite. You tell somebody to do something, they ask you a thousand questions about it. I've learned over the years, somebody starts asking a thousand questions about how to do something, you know what that means? They don't want to do it. Right? Right? I got that one figured out already. Alright, I get it. You don't want to do it. I'll find somebody else to do it or I'll do it myself. And that's just how it goes. But we have to be careful not to overlook or excuse our own rebellion in our lives because it start somewhere. So you've got to start somewhere and that's with you. To really look at your life and really consider where you have this rebate. Now, I want you to think about these traits here. It goes down through a whole list of traits. It's the first thing he talks about is a refusal to listen. He just refused to listen. And you know, you can sit right in front of somebody and they can be talking at you, but you're not listening. You ever experienced that? Because you just don't care. I could make you feel better about it, but you don't care. So that's why you're not listening. It's kind of a basic form of love, you know, to, to listen when somebody's talking at you, but you just don't care, so that's it. That's the end of it. And so I want you to consider that number one, that refusal to listen, well, that shows that there's a heart somewhere in you that is a little bit hard or a little bit cold. That's what it is. And whether it's other people that you're just sitting there and you're like, I don't care. Now, you're probably not going to admit that because that do not sound very nice, does it? It's just the truth. You just don't care. And I've been around a lot of people, and I, you know, I'm kind of a professional listener. And, and so it's, you, you, you listen if you care. If you don't care, you don't listen. That's it, period. And there could be other reasons you don't listen, like you got it already figured out but go back to point A, you don't care. Or you don't think it applies to you, go back to point A, you don't care. Uh, you, you think that this is something you've heard before, so you don't need to hear it again, go back to point A, you don't care. Now, I i could tell you some other reason or whatever, but, I mean, that kind of boils it down. Somebody look at 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Okay, see this is spiritual warfare. That's what that is. It's being described in 2 Corinthians 10. That is spiritual warfare. And one of the battlegrounds, if you've ever read the three battlegrounds by Francis Frangipan, one of the battlegrounds is your mind. And you've got to win the battle in your mind. There's three battlegrounds that he describes in that book. There's the mind, there is the church, and then there's the heavenly. That's where the three battlegrounds of spiritual warfare take place. And the first place that's going to take place is in your mind. And it's interesting there, he talks about taking captivity. How many thoughts? Every other thought? A thought maybe every now and then, or when you feel like it, the obviously demonic thoughts? Which thoughts? Every thought. You take captive every thought. That's going to exalt itself. Well, how do you know that? You don't. So you take captive every thought and you examine it. Now, you free thinkers out there, I know you. I'm a pretty creative person, but I'm not what you call a free thinker. Because my mind does funny things. Maybe yours doesn't. Mine does. And when I learned to recognize that, after I became a Christian, I I learned to recognize, and even probably before that, that sometimes my mind deceives me. Sometimes I hear things or I think things that I don't really need to be thinking about. And I kind of figured that out early. Because it would lead me down a path. And I could obsess on certain thoughts or I could obsess on certain things that are running through my mind. And I'd be led down a path that might lead me and did lead me into trouble. What do I mean by that? I mean jail. Alright? That's where it led me. And so as a young man, I had to begin to figure out, and this is before I knew Jesus, this is how i had to figure out that I couldn't follow every thought that came into my head. I had to figure that out. And it started, you know, within school. You get in trouble in school. Why? Because you just follow the thought. Well, it's a stupid thought. Stop it. And you learn not to do that. And we begin to train ourselves which things we can follow and which things we can't. And I'm going to tell you something. Now hear me this, please. You can train a dog to sit. Okay? You can train a dog to roll over. You can train a dog to do lots of stuff. They say a dog can understand. Stacey, how many words can a dog understand? A lot. Yeah, like I've, I've read up towards of two hundred words a dog can understand. Two hundred words, and and you can train a dog in certain behaviors. And all I'm trying to say is, you're a human being. You got a good working brain in your head. You can train yourself in ways of doing things, and in ways of thinking. You can. Because if a dog can figure it out, you can. And I'm saying that, and and I hope you understand me, because I want to eliminate some of the excuses that we have. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, my dog, when I first got him, he used to poop in the house. You know why? Because that's how he was. I had to train him not to do that. Hey, let us know when you need to go out, buddy. And then he does. We walk him out. He used to pee in the house. Let us know when you need to go out, buddy. And he did. It's miraculous. He let me know. And so we let him out. And we, we can go out with him. And so he goes outside where he's supposed to go. And then we bring him back inside. You understand what I'm talking about here? Basic training. Basic training of the mind. Basic training of your will and your emotions. Basic training of who you are without excuse. You don't have to follow every thought. You don't have to follow every emotion. You don't have to give in to every impulse in your life. In fact, you can train yourself not to do that. But as long as you make excuses for it, and as long as you just accept it as part of, oh, that's just who I am, you're going to keep doing that same destructive behavior. It needs to stop. It needs to stop. And so, that's spiritual warfare. I know it doesn't sound very fancy. And there's more to spiritual warfare than that. And I'd love to sit down. If you want to sit down for two, five hours and talk to me about spiritual warfare, I'm happy to. But I'm going to start right there. The basic spiritual warfare is when you begin to take charge by the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to take charge of your own behavior. Yeah, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. And all of a sudden, you're confronted with, I need to stop this destructive behavior in my life. What destructive behavior? I don't know, whatever it is. You got your destructive behaviors, I got mine. And so, when you take charge of that, that's part of the warfare aspect of it. It's part of the self-discipline aspect of it. It's part of us rising up against the destruction of the devil in our lives and saying, no, I'm going to do something else. The same thing I'll talk to you about is forgetting God's miracles, not being mindful of God's works and wonders in our life. We find ourselves not mindful of His works and wonders in our life. We find ourselves forgetting who He is. And that's the problem. You know, it's a problem when you begin to forget who God is. You know, you got the same problem when you forget where you came from too. But you forget where you came from, and you forget who God is, and that's a recipe for disaster. Am I saying you got to live in where you came from? Nope, not saying that at all. God, we we all have some some pretty miraculous stories of God's deliverance. God took us out of certain places. God took us out of certain things. God took us out of certain situations. God delivered us from certain powers of the enemy and all that. And it's important. You know, just as important as we look at that and we say, yeah, God did all of those things. You know what's really miraculous about that? It's where He took us from. And it's okay to remember that. I remember where I came from. I'm okay with that. Because I know where I'm at now. And I'm not there. And there's something really powerful about that. And there's something really faith-building about that. And there's something really trust-building about that to understand where you came from and where you are now because of who God is. And it's also okay to remind yourself about miracles. It's okay to remind yourself about signs and wonders that you've seen God do, the works that God does. It's okay to be mindful of His wonders and remind yourself of those things. As I've said, lots of you know this about me. I come from an oral tradition. All right, I heard the same stories. The same stories. The same stories over and over and over and over again growing up. Stories that my great-grandmother would tell me. Stories that my grandmother would tell me. But all of these stories that I would hear over and over again, that's how knowledge and that's how history was passed down to us. I'm like, Did you ever think about writing it down, Grandma? No. Can I record you? Well, I don't know what to say. Tell me the story again! (laughs) It just didn't work that way. It didn't work. I turned on the tape recorder and nobody talked. Scared of the tape recorder. And so I just hear the story again. And I hear the story again. I hear the story again. And I know I drive some of you crazy. And I tell you some of the same stories over and over again. And I know you think I'm getting senile. It's just the way it goes. It's just how it happens. I didn't forget I told you. I'm just telling you again. That's how it works. And so these people, they came from a very oral tradition and they would tell the same stories over and over and over and over again. And somebody eventually would write it down. That's how we have the Bible. But I mean, people would just tell the story or the prophet... He and He had a scribe sitting there writing down what he was saying. Same with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus would speak, and, and you'd have the gospel writers or those that were with him, and they'd either, either retell what he said, or somebody that was sitting there would write it down. And I know we like to think of it as a lot more precise than that, but it wasn't. It wasn't because I mean, you, you watch even Happy Jesus, the, the show Happy Jesus, whatever it's called, The Chosen. And, and you've and you got that little guy Matthew that has you know Asperger's following him around and just writing every word he says. I don't, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. I don't think there was anybody just writing every word that he said. I think that satisfies a Western need for precision in what we're hearing or reading. That's what I think that does. Because I'll tell you a little secret about the Gospel of Matthew. It wasn't the first one written. Gospel of Mark was the first one written. So whatever's in that series and Matthew's scribbling down everything, well, he sure didn't get it done, okay? In reality. But we love that. Oh, look, he's an eyewitness. He's writing it down right then. It likely didn't happen. But likely they told the same stories and they repeated things that they had heard and they said the same things over and over and over again until maybe that little guy, if he he had, you know, whatever, he had Asperger's or whatever, and he finally wrote it down. Well, he wrote it down and he created this gospel and it was circulated throughout the churches. Awesome! Or Mark was circulated throughout the churches. Awesome! Or Luke or John or whatever happened. Being circulated throughout churches. We needed that. But that satisfies, that, that's in there to satisfy us because of whatever need we have. You know, there's, there's millions of Christians in China and they didn't have a full Bible for a long time. Did you know that? They were living off of scraps of the Gospel of John for a long time. Some of them nothing. But they would just retell the stories over and over again. It's okay. Relax. It's okay. There's a primitive faith that God releases. There's a there's a primitive understanding that God releases. There's revelation that God releases. It's okay. You don't need to somehow fix that. There's nothing to fix. Church in China is growing just fine. Whether it's according to Hoyle or not, by your standard, I have no idea. Don't really care much either. You know, we're arguing over translations of the Bible. You know what Bible they use in Senegal? I mean, seriously? How old that Bible is? You know what Bible they use in Germany? Martin Luther translated it in the 1500s. Good enough. The Louis Fagan in France. Bible that many people use still in Senegal. How old that translation is. Translated by a guy. Same thing... Martin Luther, translated by a guy. Good enough. We're going to argue over what? Stupidity? Yeah. Yeah, stupidity. I used to have to get up and fake preaching out of a King James Bible. I literally have a King James Bible, but I'd have to translate it as I would read it in front of churches. Why? Because there were certain segments of the population I was preaching to that required the King James Bible, but they couldn't even understand it. I'd have to translate it on the fly. As I was reading out of it, I'd have to change the words so people could understand what I was talking about. How ridiculous is that? I used the NIV for years, and not in church, but I used the NIV for years to the point the cover fell off of it. That's how much I read it and used it. I had it one time at a youth meeting. I still use it at a youth meeting because they don't care. And I, and I had it one night at a youth meeting, and I had a pastor. He said, hey, brother, can I talk to you after the service? I'm like, all right. This is out of Rochester, west of Rochester. And he's like, come on here with me. And he go, takes me into the Christian bookstore that is part of their church. It's a huge church. It had a nice Christian bookstore in it. He's like, I want you to pick out a Bible. You can have one because I see your Bible's falling apart. Well, it's falling apart because I like it. But he's like, all right, that was nice of him. So I looked at the selection. King James, King James, King James, New King James. I got the New King James. Boom. I took it. All right. Silliness. Somebody look at Romans 8, 7. Romans eight seven. Hmm you can read that.
1: The mind governed by the flesh is hostile
0: up to God does not submit to God's law, nor can it be fit. Alright. So that that gives us an idea of how this happens. The mind governed by the flesh. Alright, I mean, you think about what that means. It's just the mind is governed by things not of the Spirit. Let's go that way. And so, we're not really that concerned about things of the Spirit, so our mind is governed by stuff that's not of the Spirit. What could that mean? Well, that means, well, do you live your life worried about what people think about you? Well, then your mind isn't governed by the Spirit. Do you live your life worried somebody's going to judge you? Then your mind isn't governed by the Spirit. You guys you started going down a whole list. It's like, I, I guess I can make something up to make you feel better, but it really speaks to us about kind of where we're at. And the problem is that where we're at, we're in this space where really we're not going to be able to live in harmony with what God has for our lives. If you have to check with, with whoever it is you've got to check with to make sure that you're not going to get judged because you follow after what Jesus tells you to do, you're not in a place to obey Jesus. If you got to check with somebody, make sure that the people aren't going to look at you and think you're crazy. If you just go ahead and do what God's called you to do, you're not really in a place to do what God's called you to do. That's not how it works. If you're in a place where you're not meeting social norms, because let's say you're not uh, you don't you're not married with two and a half kids yet, all right, and so you got family or friends putting the pressure on you. When are you going to get married? You dating somebody? All oh, whatever happens. But if that's going to govern the decisions that you make in your spiritual life, then you're really going to have a hard time making those kind of decisions. You're not really in a position to do that. You're in a position to get married and have two and a half kids. Or 2.1 or 2.3 or whatever the statistic is now. So we, we have to come to some kind of reconciliation in our mind that, that we need to come into harmony with what God says. Now, I know that sounds nice. And they say, oh, I can get on board with that. I want to come into harmony with what God says. Well, yeah, but that requires you to get out of sync with the other stuff that you've been thinking about. That requires you to get out of sync with worrying about the wrong stuff. To get out of sync with what everybody else is thinking about. Because maybe we just ain't thinking about those things right now. Maybe we're just not thinking about all that stuff that they're all thinking about it. Maybe we don't care about that stuff. Maybe we don't care about stuff that people, you know, spend their time, their effort, their money on. Maybe that's just not what we're about. All right. Well, you got to get out of sync with that to get in sync with what God has for you. That's what the, that verse basically says. And, and I want you to think about He didn't mention something here, and I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to kind of get through these. But I, I just want to point out some areas in us but he comes down to the second thing, the next thing, where he talks about a progressive stubbornness in us. Well, that is a progressive stubbornness. Because normally we don't start out too stubborn, we just get stubborn. Like we might have an idea about what we think about something, but if somebody starts kind of questioning that, or somebody starts challenging on that, you ever end up in a dumb argument? I mean, seriously? Where you end up taking a position you don't even know if you even believe in? but because they started arguing with you about it and it made you feel a little uncomfortable in your brain, you started defending a position that you don't even know if it's true. I mean, I've ended up in arguments like that. I think over time I've learned to laugh at those moments where I'm in an argument with somebody and I'm defending a position I don't even know if it's true. I've learned to stop myself in that and be like, I don't even know if I believe this. Why don't we just stop this? Because maybe I got comfortable with some dissonance that was being brought about because there was somebody saying something to me, I didn't have an answer for it. Maybe I don't need an answer for it. Maybe I don't want an answer for it. And there's no reason to get progressively stubborn. The word picture of this that, that's given in this passage, and it's used in other places where they actually speak the word picture out, but this is the word picture for this progressive stubbornness is a hardening of the neck stiffening of the neck. And in the Bible, if you've read enough through, in, in certain versions of the Bible, they talk about stiff-necked people. And that's who Israelites were. They were stiff-necked people. And so that's a progressive hardening of the neck. Now, when I was first a Christian, I read, there was a passage I read in the book of Hosea. And in this passage, it, it just talked about how someone who continually stiffens their neck. And this is over time. It's not just, you know, like right now and the next few minutes. But somebody who stiffens their neck over time, over time, over time. But someone who does that will be cut off and that without remedy. And I remember reading that when I was just real young in the faith. Before I even understood everything that was going on with that. But reading that passage and really thinking about, you know what? I do not want to be that. I do not want to be that stubborn. And I'm not talking about getting something in your faith and getting something moving ahead and having your faith set as hard as flint and just just pushing through. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a stubbornness that keeps you out of the will of God and harmony with God in your life. That you keep resisting and you keep resisting and you keep resisting, eventually your neck's going to get stiff. Stop it. Stop it. Because that was what was happening here. Someone read Ephesians 5 6. Ephesians 5 6. Let no one deceive you as you were, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, you can come up with your own understanding of the empty words. You can just come up with your own understanding of that. I think you know when you're speaking something that has weight and meaning to it, or you're listening to something with weight and meaning to it, and I think other times you know you're just listening to fluff. You're listening to stuff that don't have that much weight or meaning to it. And And I think there's a discernment that's in us that helps us to understand the difference between those things. And not to waste our time. Waste our time on emptiness. And I'm a firm believer that it's the emptiness in those empty words that maybe we choose to believe because they, they might be convenient or they might back up something we want to do anyway. We choose to believe them and, and we become stubborn about it. And I think that really is a progressive stubbornness in our life because God is faithful to sin challenges to that. And if we're reacting and we're arguing, we're arguing, we're arguing against what really is coming out, right, that's that progressive stiff neck, stubbornness. And I'm going to argue this right to the end. Why? Because I just want to do what I want to do. And these words, these empty words make me feel better about what I want to do. He talks next about a refusal to obey. And that idea of refusing to obey, that's where the, this obstinance comes in. And I'm going to describe it as just this. It is the persistent, it's persisting in disobedience after invitations to change. Because what we're talking about here takes place over a long period of time. As soon as something happens, you know, like today, tomorrow, the next day, this is what happens over a long period of time in our lives. People want to look at God and say, well, he's mean. You know, he just whap. He's going to get you. He's waiting for you to step out of line. Boom. He's right out. That's not how he works. Never. It's never been how he works. Ever. He never revealed himself that way. He's never shown himself that way. He's never acted that way. What happens is, is that there is a pattern, a persistence in disobedience that takes place in people's lives. And it's over a period of time, a long period of time after many invitations for change that something finally happens but not right away not for a long time now I'm not supposed to tell you that because you know you got to stay in line but I'm telling you that because the reality of it is if you're honest about it you know you're in line about some things you're out of line about a lot of things and God gives you opportunity to change that's the gospel Peter wasn't all the right but he had opportunity to change. John wasn't all the right but he had opportunity to change. All the disciples ran away and hid at the crucifixion but they had opportunity to change. I mean all those guys I mean they, they made mistakes they said things they shouldn't have said they did things they shouldn't have done I mean they just did they went back to fishing even after Jesus had appeared to them they went back to fishing. They had other things to do. They had opportunity to grow and they had opportunity to change. Because that's who God is. That's who God is. And, And you look at the arguments in the early church, but they had opportunities to change. Because we serve a God that is really super patient. You see, the people that Nehemiah, the people that are being prophesied to here, they would seek people that would, would approve of what they were doing. You know, we like that. To seek the approval of us. Literally, what they, it says is they appointed a captain to go back to Egypt. This came out of slavery in Egypt. They appointed a captain to send them back. Here they were. They just came out of bondage in, in the, with the Chaldeans. And already there was rebellion in the camp. Why? Because they're people. And so they were being reminded that that's just how we are. And we will find people that will agree with us. All right? I, I've, I've talked to so many people and they'll ask me, what's your opinion on this? I'll tell them, oh, I don't like that. Okay. But well, they don't say they don't like it. They'll say, oh, okay, well, I'll pray about that. And then they'll go find somebody that will tell them something else. All right. I mean, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. No stopping you. There ain't no stopping that process in your life if that's what you have in mind to do. Because you will find somebody that will agree with you. You just will. Where that means, wherever you got to go, as far as you got to go, all the way to YouTube, you will find somebody that will agree with you. So convenient. Or you'll find somebody that just doesn't care and they'll just tell you what you want to hear. Or you'll find somebody that don't have an opinion. That's good enough. What do you think about this? I don't know. Oh, good enough. All right. Is that important? You'd know. And so they were they were appointing someone to take them back into slavery. Well, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. You know, in in the wilderness, they were saying, "Oh, I like the meat, the 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 garlic and the leeks and all the stuff they said they liked." And You know, you brought us out here in the middle of nowhere, and we get this super miraculous manna delivered every day, and, you know, we want to meet, and you gave us quail, more quail than we could even eat, and we need water, and it comes out of a rock. I mean, that's so boring. Take us back to Egypt. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me look at 2 Timothy 2.26. We're going to make a transition here. 2 Timothy 2.26. want you to read that verse is that we're transitioning now. Alright? So we need to come to our senses. I don't need to live in bondage. We need to come to our senses. I don't need to live like this. We need to come to our senses. I don't need to live live in deception. I don't need to live in ignoring what reality is. I don't need to live in ignoring what God is saying. I don't need to live in ignoring His will, His purpose for my life. I don't need to live in ignoring what He's telling me to do. I don't need to... We come to our senses. You come to your senses, and that's where the escape is. Think like you wake up. I woke up. Came to my senses... And everything looked different. And I can remember the night I gave my heart to Jesus. I can remember the night I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I remember that all that happened. And I came to my senses and nothing looked the same the next day. That was just my experience. I mean, Fredonia State College looked the same, but something didn't look the same. People didn't look the same. My classes didn't seem like they were the same. I didn't look the same. Something was different there with me. Because I woke up and I came to my senses and I never wanted to go back to that kind of deception. Ever. And when I woke up, it didn't mean I, I, I became perfect. I still messed up. I was a messed up kid before I got saved. I still messed up after I, I came in and know Jesus. Things needed to change. And they did change. Something has changed right then, most things took time. I had to be retrained in how I'm going to see things. I had to be retrained in how I was going to understand the world. I had to be retrained in how I was going to apply what I knew and and apply the understandings that God had given me. I had to be retrained in that. It didn't happen overnight. But I knew if I was going to be retrained in stuff, I was going to have to know the Bible. I was going to have to know God. I was going to have to have some kind of a framework, some kind of an understanding in order to, to, to be retrained. That was the only thing I knew. And so God began to show Himself and God began to show me stuff and God began to allow me to grow and to, to change the way I was seeing things and change the way I was thinking. Change my senses. And all of a sudden God was loving and gracious because He is if you let Him reveal Himself to you that way. If you open your eyes, He is. He's loving and gracious. And He's ready. He's ready. The word there where it talks about He's a God of forgiveness, it, it literally means, that phrase means a God of pardons. A God of pardons. And you see that phrase in other two other places in the Old Testament. A God of pardons. Daniel 9.9 is one place. Psalm 130 and verse 4 is another place. And it's basically the same message. We serve a God who is ready. Ready. Ready to forgive. He's a God of pardons. And He's got lots of them. Lots of pardons. He's like better than the President leaving office. Alright? You know when they issue all the pardons, get people out of federal prison. Well, he's got pardons for you. Alright? All kinds of pardons. And he's ready to forgive. So what's holding it back? Most times because you're blind. Because I'm blind. I don't see it. I don't receive it. I don't accept it. I stubbornly plow on in some kind of darkness. We don't have to. We don't have to. You can wake up out of that. That's a terrible dream. It's a terrible reality. False reality, but a terrible reality to live in. You don't have to live there anymore. You can wake up. Because we serve a God of pardons who forgives and loves us. We serve a God that's full of grace. Yeah, grace. His favor. He likes you. That's what it is. I oh, know we like to use big words for it. Unmerited favor. That just means he likes you. Why? Because he does. He chooses to. He likes you. He likes me. You I accept that. I'm not gonna accept that. Okay. Okay. Live in your hell hole. All right. I'll give you a hand out if you want a hand out of that hell hole. But if you want to live in that hellhole where God's mad at you all the time and he doesn't like you and he's barely putting up with you, if you want to live in that hellhole, then you're gonna live there. You have to make a decision one day that you're gonna take a hand and you're gonna get out of that hell hole and come into a place of reality where God likes you. And you know he likes you because he's done stuff to show you that he likes you. He sent Jesus. He likes you. They give you life. And that more abundantly because He likes you. It's unmerited. Well, why does He like me? Because He does. You can spend the rest of eternity trying to talk Him out of it. He's still going to like you. You can tell Him every reason why you think He shouldn't like you. And He still will like you. Because that's just who He is. He's full of grace. He's full of grace. It never runs out. God is tender and kind. And you know, sometimes you don't think about God being tender and kind, but He is. He's plenteous in mercy. That's who He is. Somebody, let's look at a few verses here. Ephesians 4.32 Ephesians 4.32 Yeah, so you're given, like in that verse, and I want you to think about that verse, you're given a, a command here, all right? Be kind and gentle and and all of those things, merciful to one another. But he gives you the reason why, because that's how God is with you. He's not calling you to do that out of the blue. He's calling you to do that because that's what you've experienced in Christ. That's who he is in our lives. And learning to accept that. If you're not particularly kind or gracious or loving toward others, but likely you haven't experienced that in your relationship with Christ, then you need to. Because that's what He has for you. Look at another verse. Uh, 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. There just one thing, one thing that we need to do in that verse. And that's just be honest about where we're at. That's it. If you confess your sin, in other words, this is who I am, this is my problems, this is where I'm at. That's your job. Then He does everything else. He's faithful. He's just. He forgives you. And He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. That's all Him. But you've got to be honest enough to say who you are. That's the key to that. But there's something about that verse and, and one of the first things it says about him, it says he's faithful. He's faithful. And in the end of this passage here in Nehemiah, again prophetically, look at Jesus, all right? He says it says that he's slow to get angry. And God is slow to get angry. He is. And and he's proven that. Over and over again. Slow to get angry. And He'll never leave us. He'll never leave us. When you start to put your shortcomings on God, that's when God gets really small. And when you begin to put your personality and your shortcomings on Him... Your God's way too small. Way too small. Really transforming book I read, again, when I was an early Christian, book by J.B. Phillips. The title of that book was, Your God is Too Small. And old J.B. was right. My God was too small. I needed him to be a lot bigger. Got two verses to finish this up. Hebrews thirteen five. Hebrews thirteen five and Matthew twenty eight twenty. Hebrews thirteen five, Matthew twenty eight twenty. Somebody have Hebrews thirteen five? Yeah, because you know what money is? What everybody's worried about. They're all worried about it. They're worried about money and stuff. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's like, don't worry about money and stuff. Be content. Be happy. Find peace and rest right where you're at. Because you got something that you need to know. I mean you need to know that God's never gonna leave you or forsake you. He's faithful. You can know that. And if you know that and you actually live in that peace and that rest, you don't need to worry about money and stuff. Money and stuff just gets taken care of. You think about how tender Jesus was, he's talking about he's like he's talking to him about, you know, him taking care of them. And he's like, consider the lilies of the field. They don't spin or sew, but look how beautiful they are. Or you think about the birds of the air. They're not worth anything, but my Father in Heaven takes care of them. There's a that's tender talk right there to a people that he doesn't want worried about money and stuff. But he wants them to know that he's always going to be with them. And he's going to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Somebody have Matthew twenty-eight twenty.
1: Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely
0: I will with you always to the very end of the age. All right. And this is, that is a great commission. I mean, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, all right, well, this is what i got for you to do. He's casting vision forward. That's what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. But don't worry about money and stuff, alright? I'm with you always. Even to the end. And there's something freeing about that. There's something simple about that. There's something powerful about that. It's who He is. But shoot, all I can say is we got to find ourselves in a place to believe it. And so I left you with two things tonight. I left you with this whole idea about, you know, the spiritual warfare that we're a part of, taking captive every thought, finding ourselves in a position where our perspective and the way that we see things changes and we get free of the deceiving world and the power of the devil, to be able to live in God's freedom, his liberty, and his truth, to be able to live in his love. And I hope you can feel that prophetic edge on that. I know Nehemiah is in the Old Testament and whatever else, but man, those guys were prophesying forward. Those guys were prophesying in the spirit of Christ. people that this is the day that was coming and it's the day that we live in it's good it's good we need to stop living like it ain't the truth because it is I'm going to ask you to pray with me we're just going to take a few moments ask God to seal that word into our hearts Father thank you for loving us I thank you for your mercy it's boundless I thank you for your grace. It's boundless. I thank you for your forgiveness. It's boundless. I thank you, God, that your God of pardons you are ready, ready, ready to forgive. I thank you that you're faithful and you're just. I thank you that you cleanse and that you set us free. I thank you, God, that we don't need to worry about stuff and we don't need to worry about money because you said you'd never leave us and you'd never forsake us, that you're going to care for us. God, I, I just pray for a simplicity over us tonight. A simplicity that just believes you at your word. That we don't try to add stuff. We don't try to make it harder than it is. We don't try to, to complicate anything. We don't try to make something out of something that it's not. But I just pray, Father, that in simplicity, we recognize, okay, this is who I am. God, this is who you are. And find our peace and our rest in that. Find our peace and find our rest in that. God, I pray tonight you'd begin to set people free from the lies of the devil in their minds. I pray you begin to set people free from the lies of the enemy that keep them trapped. I pray you begin to set people free from the lies of the devil that have them convinced to something that is just just ultimately untrue. I pray that you would set people free in Jesus' name. I speak a word of deliverance over hearts tonight and a word of deliverance over minds tonight from the lies of the enemy. I pray that you would fill us with your grace, fill us with your love, God, fill us with your forgiveness Yeah, I pray a simplicity of heart and mind, here and now. I give you thanks, Jesus. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's speak by saying amen. Amen.
1: UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as they gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You no, know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? we super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin, should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of the faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, see. There's a lot of people. Yeah. No. started in 1997 that's a long time ago yo that's back in the day that was before i had my eyebrows tattooed on there. i remember that mm-hmm. yeah as an afterwards of Chaplaincy of syracuse university ucf continues to gather in the westcott neighborhood of syracuse oh me and my home we walk up and down there all the time it's, i know that's our hood Mhm. so it's in syracuse new york to share the love and hope of christ again we, we homies you yeah